welcome to the Low-Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology and the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Last time we were talking about osteology. Uh, we left off talking about osteology, the study of the skeleton itself. A lot of what uh, physical anthropology and um, bioarchaeology, as we're talking about, um, has to deal with osteology because we're looking at the human body, and often the only thing left is um, the bones and even more so uh, teeth, as you read briefly in probably one of the nicest, shortest, most succinct uh, summaries of um, dental archaeology that I've seen in that article I sent out to you. Um, then a nice little summary. Don't even have to talk about it, but I will anyway. Um, so again, osteology, study of the bones. Um, in an osteology class, you will learn all the different parts of bones, which is kind of unusual. I have friends who are physical anthropologists, and they also have to do like the cadaver work that medical doctors do. Uh, but they're not really interested in that because none of the soft tissue survives, almost always. And so they're really good at the hard stuff, which most of the normal doctors uh, don't ever deal with because you have all that soft tissue on top of it. So a lot of fun. Okay. Um, so let's talk about physical characteristics. What can we tell about a skeleton? Um, sex, and obviously this refers to biological sex. Uh, number one, not gender, and not um, necrophilia, which is something completely different. Uh, we're going to talk about how can you tell if a body was male or female. And again, remember that that is going to be tempered by the society and how they make roles and identify um, individuals um, in their society as men, women, or other. Uh, so here, you know, if we're really lucky, one of these bodic bodies might have, you know, a five o'clock shadow, or I guess you'd call it a 31 BC uh, shadow, right? Uh, so you can certainly tell that this was a uh, man. And then we have uh, things like these Etruscan tombs uh, that are one of the few things that we have remaining from Etruscans. We can't read their language, although we can read uh, the letters because they're just uh, adapted form of Greek. Um, and they have men and women uh, depicted on them, and then inside is a body, and one could assume that that body inside rep is represented by the person outside, and therefore um, is a man or a woman, or a male or female. But more often than that, those are rare and lucky examples, we have just the skeleton, and you know, there are um, changes morphological or shape changes that happen to the, to the skull, for example, and other parts of the body based on whether or not you're male or female because um, largely um, a lot of this gets set in motion um, as you're growing up once your body starts putting out um, the different hormones for um, typical of males or females. They will um, kind of push the body, although we have a basic framework, uh, those hormones will push the body towards one or another morph morphology. Um, for example, with men, um, most men, many men, and if you don't have them, it doesn't make you any less of a man, whatever. Uh, but typically, men will have what's called a superorbital torus. Your eye socket is your orbit. Super, above, superorbital torus. It's like a boss 
or kind of a, a brow ridge, right? Like you often think of uh, cavemen and whatever having big, heavy unibrows, right? Uh, mo most men will have a, a more pronounced brow ridge than women. They often have a stronger jaw and often a um, much more robust, which is a fancy word for beefy, uh, type of um, muscular uh, face geometry. And that's thought to come from uh, selection. Uh, we, so basically the idea is, um, I don't know how you want to phrase this, men are really stupid and they do lots of dumb things. And if you had a uh, less robust skull, you might die and not pass that gene on, whereas the guy with the thicker head is going to survive when they fall off a cliff. Um, that's kind of the cartoon version. But uh, it's likely, uh, judging from a lot of um, cross-cultural surveys, that men are more likely to be the hunters, not exclusively, but more likely to be the hunters. And if you're dealing with large animals that can knock you over, um, it's likely that men with more robust faces were more likely to survive such an encounter. That's one reason that there might be a selection for that. It could also be sex selection. Women uh, in a society might like a particular characteristic, and they will sexually select for men that have that characteristic. It could be anything that a society just decides is like, oh, that's really attractive. And then you learn that as a child, and you grow up, and you, you know, um, your, your upbringing and your society will dictate a lot of what you think is deep down just natural, like I find that attractive. Well, a lot of that is driven by your society, like it or not. So, um, and, and we can have a selective um, force over time on our skeletons, which is fun. The probably best slam dunk, <laughs> never thought of a female pelvis as a basketball hoop, uh, but it kind of is, uh, because it has to push out a screaming small pile of humanity. Um, and so pelvis, or pelvi, or pelvises, however you want to say it, um, are probably the most diagnostic. And when I say diagnostic, that means it helps us not diagnose problems. Uh, it helps us um, say which, if it's male or female. Um, and so a female pelvis um, will have a much broader angle and an overall broader morphology or shape uh, when looked from above or superior view. You can see the uh, wide open birth canal um, that the uh, child's head will hopefully pass through. Whereas uh, a male pelvis is much more upright and constricted. So it's more like this, whereas a female pelvis is more open and wide. Um, again, a lot of this stems from um, hormonal growth um, and changes a lot during puberty, uh, prepubescent individuals don't have as much differentiation. Yeah, sexing children, that sounds bad. Um, determining the sex of child skeletons, slightly better, um, is, uh, is, is very difficult, if not usually impossible, because these hormones uh, haven't taken uh, effect on the growing skeleton as much. Um, there are some <laughs> ideal proportions. What the heck? Okay. Uh, Part of the uh, other interesting morphology differences between men and women, although even men and women of different heights um, will have uh, very similar limb lengths, actually. Um, they will have a different femoral angle. So your femur goes from, you can touch, there's this bone, the trochanter, on the outside of your um, hip. And it goes at an angle down. And then at the bottom of your uh, femur is a flat 90 degree 
perpendicular, excuse me, um, parallel to the floor angle. And so men, because of their narrow hips, have a much uh, more upright uh, femur, whereas women with their, I can't model that because my hips don't expand, um, they have a much wider angle. And so you can measure, you can actually just take the femur, set it on a table, and measure how far over it goes. And of course, this is like all things in, let me rephrase that, almost all things in nature. Uh, when you look at a society, we're probably going to see a bell curve, right? So the male angle, um, right, which one's the male? Right, with the backwards hat, and then the female. Um, so the angle of, let's say here, it's what, 12% for male, that's the average, and 16% for female. Well, you know, there's going to be variation. Uh, really tall women might not have as wide of an of a angle, uh, whatever. Right? So there's going to be some overlap. So no one individual, one of these markers, is necessarily going to be a slam dunk except for perhaps the pelvis. So usually um, physical anthropologists or bioarchaeologists will try and gather all of these together and paint a picture, uh, you know, use a number of points to make a stronger case for identification. But age at death. There are many changes in your body as you age, um, more so when you're young. We have a much easier time getting the um, age of dead children rather than uh, once you pass 50, especially in pre-industrial societies, once you pass 50, you pretty much look the same until you're dead. It's hard to tell, you know. Um, so uh, for example, let's say you are a crazy, deranged serial killer of children, and you are bopping them on the head and letting their bodies decompose, and then you want to figure out how old they are. I don't know why that's the scenario that I'm going to use, but uh, you know, maybe let's not use that one. Let's say you're an archaeologist and you find a child cemetery behind a serial killer's house. There we go. That's much better. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I shouldn't make light. Uh, there are um, anthropologists who work as forensic anthropologists, and this is exactly what they do. There is a uh, pig sty in uh, Canada, in uh, near Vancouver, that was full of dead, shall we say, ladies of negotiable affection um, that this guy had been picking up in Vancouver and killing and feeding to his pigs. And they asked for volunteer physical anthropologists to go excavate the pig sty. So anyway, in our scenario here, we're trying to come up with the ages of all these uh, dead kids in the backyard of this guy's house. And one of the ways we can do that is through teeth, right? Uh, as you know, I remember being in first grade, for some reason I remember this, uh, we had this big chart on the wall. And all of us had our names there. And then every time we lost a tooth, they'd put a little tooth sticker next to it. And the person who lost the most teeth that year, I don't know, got a prize or something. I don't remember what that was, but I remember that you know we were all losing teeth at different rates. Um, but there is a general overall pattern of tooth loss and tooth growth that is typical for human beings. Um, if you find a uh, young person's skeleton and it has still its baby teeth, you can probably say, well, it's you know below a certain age, four or five, when they start to lose those teeth significantly. And then you know six years, you start to see the adult teeth kind of pushing up and coming in, first the incisors, then a molar, and then some of the uh, premolars. At nine years, those incisors are in, the, the molar, second uh, molar is starting to come in, these premolars are, are just about to come in, 
you know, as you get older, this is a typical progression. As you're a young adult, right, we have that extra wisdom tooth that often gets pulled. Um, and as, you're, as you get older, then you start losing the teeth again, especially in pre-industrial societies where your food is not as soft and sweet. Although, um, as you read in the newspaper or the uh, article that I sent you guys today, uh, the soft, sugary foods that we have been eating for the last 150 years not only are playing havoc with our um, bodies, which weren't evolved to eat that much sugar and fat all the time, uh, but our teeth, which were evolved for eating much harder things. And you know, the, I take what that article said with a grain of salt, like before industrialization, people lost a ton of their teeth because they cracked them or they wore them down because of grit in their food or things like that. So like, well, either you're damned if you do or damned if you don't, you're gonna lose your teeth one way or the other, I suppose. Um, and so by the, what's called the eruption, which is when your teeth push uh, through the gums, by the eruption of the different adult teeth, you can have a pretty solid handle on when somebody's born. For example here, you know, if these teeth are here, they're at least six or seven years old, seven or eight, right, and that goes back. And here are your wisdom teeth that pop out between 17 and 21, which is about, does anyone still have their wisdom teeth? Oh wow, look at you guys. Um, we also have uh, what are called growth plates. And the way, it's actually really, I think it's really interesting how the uh, long bones, so like your femur, your tibia, your humerus, um, the way they grow is they have the, the shaft of the bone, and then they have what's called the articular surface. This is where it contacts another bone, right? It articulates, and so it has all the collagen and all that really nice stuff that keeps your knees bending smoothly, hopefully, and all that stuff. And so, you know, on the one hand, if we had growth, how, you know, you kind of might just, if you didn't really think about it really carefully, oh, you might expect just growth to happen here, right? But then you're having to grow new cells on an articular surface that's moving all the time. It seems not like the best uh, idea or necessarily the most efficient way to grow. So what we have, it's kind of like a mining operation. You have the head of the bone, and then under where it makes contact, there's this area. Um, uh, physis, right where it makes contact with that articular surface, it new bone it grows right here. And so this moves up, and then more new bone is grown here. This moves up, and then more new bone is grown here. And so it kind of pushes the head of the bone farther as your long bones get longer. So um, those grow until you're in your, eh, it depends on the bone. Some bones fuse a little earlier, some bones fuse much later. And by looking at the skeleton and seeing which bones have fused, uh, you can have an idea of approximately how old that person is. Fun fact, uh, when I was a kid, I broke, here's the growth plate on the bottom of your tibia. I uh, fell, so I was in show choir because I was super cool. And um, it was slippery outside, it was raining out or snowy outside and I was like running up the risers to get into place and I slipped and caught my foot between the risers and fell off the risers. And rise, one riser here, like it snapped my growth plate right off the bottom of my tibia. And they got it back in place, but the doctor said your uh, right leg is gonna be about an inch shorter than your left leg. Thank goodness that didn't happen. 
but I broke the growth plate right off my, my bone, which is pretty fun. Um, Wormian sutures, that's what these things are called. They're in your skull. We all know that when you're born, you probably shouldn't be like poking your finger into your little kid brother or sister's head because they have that frontonelle that is basically soft. It allows their head to be compressed to pass through. Even though it looks like a large pelvic opening, you know, 10 centimeters, it's not a big space to pass your head through. And so when they're born, they have that soft skull to pass through the birth canal a little more easily, and then it hardens up. And it creates these, actually I think they're really kind of pretty, uh, these sutures, right, where they go back and forth and they kind of lock in together like a, like a lock and key sort of, uh, and they hold your skull together. And as you get older, they start to form connections across these little canyons, and they fuse together. And the more fused they are, the older you are. And so this is one way we can often get at uh, more advanced age. The fusing of the, of the Wormian sutures on one's skull. So um, let's change gears from this weirdo serial killer with the pile of kids in the backyard. Let's talk about a more archaeological, likely, I hope, uh, find, which would be, um, let's say you are out in Alberta uh, under a cliff, and you're excavating what is a buffalo jump. A buffalo jump is a way that uh, Native Americans would kill a whole bunch of buffaloes at once. They would put up rock piles that were the size, you know, like big, tall rock piles, and from the top, it would look like kind of a funnel. And then here's the cliff edge. And they would stand behind these and wave uh, blankets or skins. And the buffalo herd would get scared and run down this funnel and then over the cliff to their death. Um, and so I have a picture of it, not a real picture. No, OK, I don't at this point. I'll have one later. Um, and so it's an entire herd. That means the mama, the mama bison and the papa bison and the baby bisons all fall off a cliff and die. This is what's known as a catastrophic age profile. That means everybody dies, or a lot, the vast majority of everybody dies. Um, this is often seen in natural disasters or other sorts of unexpected catastrophes, so it's easy to remember. Um, where you get kind of a snapshot or a census of the entire um, society or uh, population because everybody died. Um, and so we can see there's a lot of you know, babies and juveniles and less and less as we get older, which kind of parallels you know, what one expects to see in a snapshot of those individuals' death. All right. Not worth mentioning. Okay. And then we have what's called the attritional, attritional age profile. This is not a snapshot. This isn't how many people or um, animals or whatever were alive at any one time. This is when do people die, and people uh, or animals are very likely to die in infancy. So that's why we have this huge spike here in the beginning. And then there are you know, uh, childhood diseases, childhood stupidity. And then once you hit adulthood, 
you're likely to survive until you start getting old enough that old age problems start to creep up and take you down. Uh, so usually like a human attritional age profile, this is an animal attritional age profile. Not that we're not animals, but uh, we have significant behavioral characteristics that make us behave slightly differently, or um, our attritional. Usually it's a high infant mortality that drops through childhood. Once you make it through childhood, you're usually good. And then there's an uptick when a lot of people are dying when they reach average, average uh, lifespan. And then you have the really old fogies who have managed to cling on to life like grim death. <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, until you know they're, they're really old. Uh, so that's more of a human attritional age profile. That's the typical one you would expect to see if you're just looking at a village over a long period of time. If you went to a cemetery, for example, that might be something you'd see if everybody got treated the same, which isn't always the case because sometimes if you have high infant mortality, you might not bury them in the cemetery until they're at least three years old because it gets expensive burying 30 kids from one family, you know what I mean? Okay, height. Height is a little more straightforward. Um, usually you can reconstruct it or you can't. Um, usually we reconstruct height by uh, comparison between uh, human beings' uh, long bone length and their overall height. So let's say, you know, we had all the time in the world and we, every one of us, measured the distance between that tip of the femur and your knee. Um, you would very likely fall in, um, let's see, humerus for male. So it's very likely that my bone length between here and here is something around, I don't know, 32, right? And then my height would be around here, make a scatter plot, and there's a pretty nice correlation between your humerus length or your tibia length or your femur length. I'm sorry, that was my femur. Not my humerus, which is here. Um, not so funny now. Uh, yeah, and so for females, there's a slightly different curve. So often you need to know the sex to give you a better chance because remember that uh, women's legs proportionally to their body are generally longer than men's when seen as a proportion of their overall height. So it's a little different. Um, but based on trends, usually you have to use a similar population. So like, um, although there is some general similarity of human beings across the world, um, if you have, you know, Maasai warriors and their ancestors, you're looking at the Maasai folks who are really tall and skinny, uh, you might want to, uh, if you can, use an, uh, an existing population that has a similar set of characteristics to reconstruct height. Now this just shows one bone at a time, but it's perfectly acceptable if you have all of these bones, you can make three calculations and then average them, uh, carefully compare them and come up with a composite height. Um, if you have, uh, for example, do I have a picture of it? No, I don't, where are these pictures? Uh, if you have, for some reason, uh, footprints uh, preserved, which happens, sometimes people walk through wet mud and then that becomes buried and then, uh, or ash, like happened at Laetoli. Um And you can see the footprints of these individuals. Uh, our stride length is, we actually have a really interesting bimodal efficiency curve. So when you walk, if you're just kind of walking comfortably, that is a peak efficiency based on 
the pendulum swing of your leg, right? Uh, you can figure out how long that is, and if you go, so this is efficient. Here at the bottom of this graph, this is inefficient. So if I'm going artificially slow, then I'm slowing down my leg, and that's taking extra energy than actually just walking comfortably. And if I walk a little bit faster than comfortably, I look like a weirdo, and I have to put in more energy. So there is, each one of us has a high efficiency speed of walking, which you'd probably just call, oh, this is my most comfortable walking speed, because that's what it feels like. Same thing for running. Uh, it takes more energy, but those of you who are runners uh, probably know that you have, like, if you don't have a clock or distance measurements and you're just jogging along, you're going to have a cadence that feels most easy. The same thing's happening here. And so that's based on your height. And so if you can get the distance between strides, you can actually reconstruct how high somebody is, which is kind of fun. How, excuse me. <laughs> if they're high, you probably can't tell from if they're walking how tall they are. That's what I meant to say, of course. Okay. Sorry, I'm a little over-caffeinated today. Weight is a little bit uh, tougher because uh, only to a point are your weight and mass or your weight excuse me, a height and mass or height and weight uh, correlated, right? A taller person like could say, mom, I'm dating a guy, he weighs 250 pounds. She might say, holy cow, he's huge. Well, he's six, seven, and he's a linebacker for a football team. Oh, okay. It's proportional, right? So there is some point where um, a larger body is expected to weigh more just for proportion size. But uh, obviously a lot of our mass is related to soft tissue that has uh, a lot more behavioral uh, uh, behavioral um, background rather than a uh, biological background. So, uh, you know, if you're a larger person, your weight to height ratio isn't going to be very useful. So it's generally very difficult to, uh, cor uh, to correlate weight with height. Appearance. Um, there are a couple ways. Again, a lot of our appearance is based on soft tissue. Um, and so one way that we have an idea of what people look like, or at least what people aspired to look like, is through art. And so we have here the terracotta warriors. Um, obviously, we're not going to know. Now, it's sometimes commonly thought that each one of these represented a real individual in this, in, uh, this Chinese emperor's army. But what is actually happening is they had like six types of eyebrows, six types of hairdos, uh, six types of face, um, facial hair, four types of mouths, two types of ears, three face shapes, and then they just mixed and matched a whole bunch and put them together to make them look like random individuals when in fact it is really just the mixing and matching of random um, styles of all these different uh, traits. Anyway. It's likely, though, that they were modeled on real people, right? Uh, those types of facial hair um, styles, those types of hair hairdos uh, probably weren't invented. They were probably common at the time. Same thing with dress and things like that, but we're not really talking about dress right now. Um, same thing with this Moshe pot. Uh, anything that is large, largely realistic looking and or um, meant to show 
an exemplary person either shows what they looked like or what they aspired to look like. Sometimes we have individuals whose soft tissue remains kind of, like the bog bodies. Here's a mummy from Egypt, and here is a uh, freeze-dried mummy from North, uh, excuse me, South American Andes. And, you know, obviously there's some loss of soft tissue, and, you know, we might think they look a little worse for wear, although, you know, I challenge any of you to look this good at, uh, I don't know, five or six hundred years, uh, a couple thousand years, or four or five thousand years. I challenge you all to look so good. A little, maybe a little moisturizer, okay. Um, there are um, other ways that we are able to do reconstruction on faces, and you, if you've ever watched the Discovery Channel, you've probably seen a show on this, where they take the skull, and they put little markers um, of thickness, of usual thickness, like over the forehead. We have very, very thin. You can touch your own forehead, right? There's not much uh, extra fat or uh, skin there. So they put very thin markers over the cheeks, a little more, over down here where the muscle, um, you know, the, the chewing muscles and things are. It's a lot thicker. So they put thicker ones. Then they put uh, clay over it, and you're able to reconstruct uh, what somebody looked like from a skull, for example. Um, this is actually a reconstructed face um, that a friend of mine did. Uh, they found a person who had hung himself in the woods, and nobody found him for a couple of years. Uh, so it was just a skull left. My friend uh, did this reconstruction. They put it on the news, and they found uh, the guy's sister recognized him. And obviously, she knew he was missing, so you know, maybe if you just put that on the news, you might not find him. But if you were looking for your missing brother, and then you saw that on the news, that might be close enough that they said, hey, that's my brother. Noses are pretty tough. Hairstyles are pretty tough, because those, um, the noses leave few traces. Um, the thickness of you know, like lids or eye color or things like that are not necessarily easily known without doing some DNA tests. You could probably figure out at least the eye color. Okay, let me switch to Bioarchaeology 2. All right. Um, we also look at uh, genetic relationships. Much of that is more recent. Um, we can do things like blood grouping pretty easily, um, but also uh, DNA studies. And um, there are two types. Um, well, there's one type of DNA that is particularly interesting to archaeologists because it is only passed down through the female line. It is MT or mitochondrial DNA because, okay, I'm assuming that I'm not the first one to tell you this, so um, hopefully it's not too awkward when a man and woman love each other very much or whatever, um, and uh, a female is ovulating, she will release an egg, which is a you know, an almost complete cell. So it has the nucleus and it's got the mitochondria and the, all the other organelles and things that are in a cell that I can't remember because I haven't had that class since high school. Anyway, uh, so it has all these little, um, or you're in biology right now, right? So you can rattle them off maybe. Uh, anyway, so what it's missing is half of its chromosomes, which are provided by our friend the sperm, who comes in and drops off uh, his chromosomal um, Thank you, stuff. That is the technical term. So what happens, though, is the mitochondria of the mother is still there, right? So the kid, when this divides and becomes two cells, and then four cells, 
whatever, that mitochondria is recreating itself. And so there is no addition of mitochondrial information because it has its own little bit of DNA in it, uh, of, my, of uh, parental mtDNA. So when that divides and creates a young lady and then she has kids, their mtDNA is going to be exactly the same as their mother's. It's going to be the same as their grandmother's and so on back. Um, I, as a male, have my mother's mtDNA, but uh, if I were to have kids, they would not have my mtDNA. So the interesting and neat part about this for DNA tests is that um, just because of the way DNA uh, gets copied through transcription, basically these pull apart and then they get repopulated with, so they pull apart and a little kind of molecular machine comes and creates copies of the missing half and it zips itself apart like a zipper and usually it makes, usually, a one for one copy. But if you've ever made a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, you know you can get something called transcription error, um, that it gets a little muffled over time. And let's say, for whatever reason, when my, the egg that became me uh, was transcribed, you know, it had a bit of a anomaly there. Mm -hmm. Better said, when my sister, let's, let's not me, my sister, because I'm not going to pass on my mtDNA, so who cares? But let's say when my sister's uh, egg came through and was transcribed and became my sister, it has this weird anomaly in the mtDNA. And as long as it's not anything that kills her, she's going to pass that on to now her. She has two beautiful little kids, both girls. She's going to pass that weirdo mtDNA on to her kids. They're going to pass it on to their kids and so on and so on. And so in a thousand years, if my sister was the beginning of this weirdo mtDNA, we could look at all the people that have it and say, oh, they're all related back to this mitochondrial Eve. My sister's name is not Eve, but in this case, we call her mitochondrial Eve because Judeo-Christian whatever. Anyway, so that's an example of what we've uh, done to trace back uh, different human populations. We look at their mtDNA and say, how closely is this related? When do you guys have the same mutations? Oh, if you do, you're very likely more genetically related to one another. Often these mtDNA things just serve as markers. They don't serve as mutations that are going to kill you. So has anyone sent off? Yes, please, Dirk. Yeah, like back to like millions, uh, I wouldn't say millions of years, but hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, quite a long time. And so like if, I, I'd love to do this. If I was teaching physical anthropology, I think it would be really fun to make it a requirement that everyone sends in their mtDNA and they'll sequence it. And like, if you have Irish ancestry, there are going to be markers on your mtDNA that show that uh, because, you know, Ireland is isolated. And so that mtDNA uh, has those specific derivations, right? Uh, if you, um, if your family is, you know, of a particular ethnic origin or even a variety of them, often that will be borne out in your mtDNA. But again, that's only from one half of your lineage. All right. Uh, Bioarchaeology or physical anthropology looks at a couple of different things uh, in human evolution. 
one of them is walking. Um, so we can call this habitually bipedal locomotion is the fancy way to say walking. Uh, it's not very common, right? Uh, I'm sure we've all seen the cutest three-legged dog that the internet has to offer. Um, but if you're a four-legged animal and you lose one leg, you can still get around fairly well and often very cutely if you're a dog. Um, but uh, it's unusual. Only birds and uh, some random hominids ha are, are two-legged, really. Those seem to be the majority of two-legged individuals. Um, and there are anatomical changes that go along with walking. For example, our feet have been redesigned from hands to more, or, you know, hands that grip to more um, kind of club, clubby sort of uh, walking devices. Uh, our femurs are uh, angled out uh, for chimpanzees and in for us. The pelvis is kind of part of the rib cage here for chimpanzees, but for us it kind of has tilted and it holds all our organs up. Um, look at the, this is actually really neat. We have back problems as human beings from a life of carrying things, from slumping in chairs, from doing all these things. If you think about it, and from more of an engineering point of view, a chimpanzee back is kind of like a suspension bridge. It's curved, it bears weight this way, and it has all kinds of muscles and things that hold the different things together. But it's a, a nicely evolved shape for holding itself up. Right? And eventually, yeah, it does sag a bit, but human beings have taken basically a suspension bridge and stood it up on end, which is not really how suspension bridges are, uh, I say the word designed, because suspension bridges are, um, but uh, in our terms, uh, a lumbar system is not really evolved to be upright. There aren't many uh, upright, even birds that are two-legged, they're spines go like that, and this part here is the neck. The rest of it's still flat. So anyway, our lumbar have had to adjust to uh, being upright over the last seven million years. Interestingly enough, our behavior changes, and we're still probably, our bodies are probably still catching up to us being bipedal, uh, even seven million years after we first started walking upright. Fun fact, I'm sure you've all seen those um, evolutionary, like, progressions from, you know, chimpanzee to more upright, to more upright, to more upright, to completely upright. What that really should look like if it were accurate were a chimpanzee like this to being upright. <laughs> like, it happened fairly quickly. Um, and then our brains got bigger later. So it would be standing upright and then just getting a bigger brain. So it's kind of, it'd be kind of boring and a little taller, I guess. But uh, we evolved out of a very uh, three-foot-tall uh, chimpanzee, probably a very cute looking small chimpanzee. And at the same time, the chimpanzees split, split off and became larger, um, the larger apes that we know them to be today. Anyway, uh, it's likely that those first bipedal populations were built for being down on the ground, uh, four-legged, but out of habit, habitual uh, bipedal motion, they behaviorally changed and stood up and that might have had, this is a huge discussion we're not going to be able to get into for lack of time, but there's all kinds of theories about it from uh, the environment change from less trees to more savanna, so they were constantly standing up so that they wouldn't get eaten by, you know, large cats and things. Um, 
And so maybe their whole lives they walked around even though it would be like making your dog walk on two legs. It could do it, but it wouldn't be very happy. It's very likely that the early bipedal ancestors that became us probably had a lot more joint pain, hip pain, back pain in their short, at the end of their short little lives uh, than we do because evolution hadn't caught up yet. Their behavior changed, their evolution hadn't fully yet. Um, and we can see other examples of where, how we can see in the bodies that this changed. Uh, a chimpanzee and a, and a dog, for example, their skull kind of hangs in front of their backbone, and so it attaches at the back. If here's their eye and their mouth, it attaches more like right here. And human beings, it's right underneath. And that's changed over time. Uh, and you can see over 7 million years where that uh, foramen magnum, big hole literally in the bottom of your head, has moved from back here all the way down. And we can see that slowly changing. So people would have been less like this and more upright over you know, 7 million years of evolution. Hooray. Handedness. You might not think about this. You might not think, well, does anyone have an idea why handedness might be a benefit? Yeah. Uh, to some extent, although chimpanzees and other apes and other animals have pretty fine motor skills, actually, surprisingly. Um, chimpanzees are able to make stone tools and manipulate things pretty evenly. Um, it probably has to do with the complex things we have to learn to do. And if you have to think of how long it took you to learn to write smoothly, um, imagine having to do that twice with both hands, right? Um, same thing for like throwing a ball, right? Um, there's a very pejorative uh, sexist way to refer, refer to somebody throwing a ball like a girl, which, you know, if you watch, like, there are some girls who can pitch. The, wasn't there like a famous, uh, this last couple of years in the uh, Little League Championship, there was like a, one of the players was like a girl who was a pitcher. She was pretty awesome. Uh, so throwing like a girl is a little pejorative. It, basically, uh, throwing a ball takes practice. And I bet all of us could go outside and throw a ball with our predominant hand pretty well. And then as soon as we switch to our other hand, we're going to look like somebody who doesn't know how to throw a ball. And throwing is probably something that came in very handy for early hunters and gatherers. Therefore, focusing all your practice on one hand, make that hand so much better than the other, uh, it was a, seemed to be an advantage uh, rather than throwing with both hands marginally well. You throw with one really well. That seems smart. Um, and the cool thing is, the way that people made um, stone tools, you can tell based on the morphology or the, the shaping of the tool that they were held with the left hand and struck with the right hand. So the people making them were right-handed at a rate of 90%. Like millions of years ago, 90% of human beings, or what became us, uh, were right-handed, which is about the same proportion that we see today. Any left-handers in here today? Oh, I should have known. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no idea. Um, yeah, uh, as far as the 
the brain splitting, like the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain, I'm going to pass on talking about that as it changes more and more. And it's hard also to get a look at, you know, when would things like, if, if there is a true splitting of the brain for a different analytic, you know, one side is analytical, one side is more artistic or whatever. Um, seeing that in the archaeological record is nearly impossible at this point. So I'm going to skip over that. Speech is another fun one. Um, there are a lot of markers for speech. Unfortunately, they're almost all in soft tissue. For example, uh, the nerves that go to our tongue are much more robust than those that go to the tongue of a chimpanzee because we have to be able to make complex motions with our tongues. Right? Um, we have a, we've given up something that chimpanzees have. You'll never be uh, having a beer with a chimpanzee and the chimpanzee starts coughing and says, it went down the wrong pipe. The chimpanzee will never say that for two reasons. Number one, it can't articulate that. Um, and number two, chimpanzees can breathe and swallow at the same time. There, uh, if you think about it, it's a pretty stupid evolutionary bottleneck we've put ourselves in that we can choke on things. Like that's, like, you can jam something into a chimpanzee's throat and unless it's like large enough that it blocks the whole throat, like it can breathe and swallow. So it's not gonna need the Heimlich maneuver. Uh, don't go feeding chimpanzees large like tennis balls and killing them and saying, well, he might, yeah, he said. Uh, but we have had to reconfigure, or our throats have reconfigured and opened and widened and uh, morphed a little bit so that we can have a bit more complex vocalizations. And that is at the expense of accidentally allowing liquids to go down our esophagus rather than our, uh, wait, no, um, one's the windpipe, esophagus is windpipe, and then the other one is the Crowdsource, windpipe, and the tube that goes to your stomach. Why can't I remember that? Oh, probably right. Trachea, that's it. Okay, esophagus and trachea. Esophagus goes to your stomach and trachea. I'm sorry, and trachea goes to your, trachea goes to your um, lungs. Anyway, so we have this overlap here, and here's, you know, when it goes down the wrong pipe, it goes there, and that uh, hasn't been closed off. Um, and that is evidence of, of increased speaking. Also, we have Wernicke and Broca's areas in our brains, but again, hard to reconstruct. Sometimes we can get, because the, the folds on your brain will actually leave an impression on the inside of your skull, so if you fill it with plaster and then crack the skull and take it off like an egg, you can see a really vague um, imprints of, of the uh, folds in your brain. However, uh, Wernicke's and Broca's areas are hard to nail down when they came about. It's, and again, this wasn't like we had chimpanzee parents and then they had a kid and the kid was like, hey mom, hey dad. Uh, it was increased slowly over time. A uh, vocal communication would have been a slow, gradual evolution that still might be going on. So nailing down exactly when it started is a little difficult. Uh, we also see some genetic markers like the FOXP2 gene, um, which goes back 100,000 years. But it's likely that we've had pretty complex speech issues, uh, uh, morphology for quite a long time. Another fun, I guess, 
um, part of studying the skeleton is the stress that you have on your body. Because if you had a twin and you live very different lives, your skeleton would show that. Say you have, um, you know, you have a cushy office job and your uh, twin brother is a rodeo clown or a sheep farmer or somebody, uh, a wood uh, gatherer or somebody who's doing very physical work, um, your more active brother is probably going to have thicker bones because bones will actually grow in response to stress. Um, the more you stretch the bones, the thicker they get. And so bodybuilders will have like these really robust bones and the places where the muscles attach, which are called inserts, they're kind of like really rough spots on the bone so that the muscle has something to attach to. They get bigger and beefier. So you can kind of tell if someone was really well muscled or not. Um, that's one of the reasons that people on the International Space Station have to do work. They have to work out and stress their bodies because their bones actually deteriorate because they're not being stressed out. Uh, we can also th see things like, oh, oh, this makes my joints hurt looking at these. Um, so we have a normal joint with your cartilage and the fluid that helps it move all nice. And then we have arthritis and osteoarthritis, uh, some related to genetics, some related to uh, how you work um, and wear down your body. So uh, that can certainly talk like a, the ancient Maya women would be kneeling uh, and grinding corn with their toes bent under all day. And the actual part of the toes where the toe touches the foot would be bent so much that the articular surface would actually migrate up and they would create a new articular surface because they're bent their toes up all day uh, grinding corn for three or four hours a day. Crazy town. All right, we'll get into disease next time. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.